Uh, all of us have the same amount of time. That is uh, one of the great equalizers in our life. We might have different levels of income. We might have uh, different experiences that we have. And some of us have uh, different upbringings, obviously, that, that contribute to the, the health of our life. But we all have the same amount of time. And if you just kind of look at the statistical breakdown, and this isn't true, obviously, for every single person, but if you average out through your life, this is sleep. Uh, you spend 28 years of your life sleeping. Uh, for some of you, that might be, maybe it might extend into here for those sleepy heads of you. You spend 10 years working of your life, 10 and a half years working, uh, not to depress you, but you know, it's about half of your life is spent sleeping and working. That's about, you're like, yep, you got it. That's, that's basically what I do. I sleep and I work. And don't forget, nine years watching TV uh, or on social networks or video games. Really, that is most of your life. It's sleeping, working, and watching TV. And if you probably think through your life, you're like, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, you spend six years doing chores, and every kid is like, yes, I know, tell me about it. I spent six years last night doing that. Four years uh, eating and drinking, education, two and a half years grooming. That seems like a lot, but uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, and all sorts of other things, right? 1.3 years commuting, that maybe that'll shrink as more and more people work from home. Nine years of other activities, so that's just kind of, that's your free time right there. Everything else uh, kind of falls into that bucket. And if you take all of this, you've got around 78 years to do all of that stuff. The average life expectancy is actually dropping in America, uh, but the average life expectancy is 77.8 years, which has been a decline of one for males, 75, and for females, it's 80 years. So those, you know, you females are going to live longer than us men. Uh, but that's about how much time you have to live. Obviously, that, there's a lot of different factors that go into that. Some people live a lot longer than that. Some people live less than that. These are just averages. But if you take that, and it's, you know, about 80 years, if you take that, you can actually buy a calendar. I think this is... Um, I don't know if I, I kind of want one of these and then I kind of think maybe that's sort of freaky. I'm not sure, but it's a week calendar. So these are each the weeks and you check off as you get closer and closer to 80. You'd say there's one week, there's one week, and you just kind of count down the weeks of your life. And that might be kind of cool to have in your house. I don't know. It might kind of freak you out, uh, but that's really your life. That, that's what we have. We have this much time to live. But no matter how much you live, whether it's 80 years on average or whether it's 75 if you're a guy or whatever it is, it all ends here. That's where it ends. And I'm not trying to be gruesome or, you know, whatever, but this is where it all ends, right? At the end of it, we know, I can tell you your future, it all ends here. Not so bad. This is a cemetery in Denver. You got a nice mountain view or dirt view, actually. But this is, uh, you know, at least the people that come to visit you have a nice mountain view. But that's where it all ends. That's where it all ends. All of the sleeping and Netflix and working and chores and all of that kind of graph. At the end, it all ends here, right? That's the, the future destination of every single one of us. Our time is limited. Our time is limited. So the question is just what do we use it for, right? What do we use it for? What's the best use of that time? What's the best use of those check boxes? What's, what is the, the most that we can do to make it count? We're all building a life. We all have a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of days and a certain amount of weeks. We're all building a life but it's easy not to have focus in that, right? It's easy to kind of go through that graph and say, yep, I sleep and I work and I watch TV and I do. And it's easy to just kind of live that life for 78 years or 75 years or 90 years, whatever it is, and kind of check those check boxes week by week. It's easy to live that and not have focus. A lot of times it takes some sort of tragedy in our life and then we might kind of wake up in some way and say, okay, what do I really want this to be about? 
There's a classic Tim McGraw song that live like you were dying. I might sing it if I wasn't feeling so uh, non-COVID-y but sick. Um, but just as another disclaimer, uh, you know, I, but he talks about that he was, he's diagnosed, uh, I think, with cancer, and then he begins to think about his life, and he says, going fishing wasn't such an imposition, great country rhyme there, and he says he's going to try to be the friend that he wished that he would have, and he's going to start forgiving more, and kind of all of these different things that start to give focus to life, right, when there's some sort of tragedy, because a lot of times we just live our life, there's no focus in it, we're just kind of going through it. But what if we could live with focus? What if we could live with focus in the days, the weeks, the hours that we have? Checking each box. If you did buy that that calendar, checking each box and saying, that counted. That counted. I made the most of that. I made the most of that. What if we could live like that? What if we could live with a focus knowing that there's no regret that we are using our time in the best way. Some of you are young and you're just beginning to build your life. And sometimes in college or other times, young people kind of hear the speeches of don't waste your life and go out there and conquer the world. And and some of that can be good and helpful to think, not just kind of living your life and having a bunch of fun, but what does it mean to really make it count? Some of you are getting older And what does it mean to use the rest of those checkboxes that you have to really make them count? And some of us, I I don't know, we're just kind of in between. We're maybe not so young, not so old, but, but life is just life and we're sleeping and working and watching Hulu or whatever we're doing and, and need to figure out how do we make this count? How does all of the different routines and the things that I do, does any of it really matter? How can I focus my life. Jesus wants to give our life, our hours, our weeks, our days, our years. He wants to give it focus. He wants us to have a life that really does count and make a difference and to give meaning to all that we do. How? How do we live a life with focus? How do you live a life with the years that you have, whether you're right down the average, you reach 78.2 or whatever it was and drop dead, you know, whatever, wherever you are, whether you're a long liver or a short liver, how do you live with focus? That's what I want to explore today. And Jesus is going to help us consider that. And it's really not normally the way that we think about that. It's kind of a surprising way to think about living with focus. And the first question as we explore that that I, I want us to think about is just this, which is kind of overarching. How, what, should we, what should guide how we use time? What should guide how we use the time that we have? What should be kind of the the compass? What should be the the gauge or the filter that we use to figure out how to use time? Oftentimes, we don't really think about this question. We just go through life, right? We're busy. We're doing things. We're not necessarily thinking about what's my guide or what's the filter. Or if we do think about what should guide our time, we might think more kind of at the granular level of, time management, and what should guide my time today, and how do I be productive today, and some of you might be really into to-do lists or kind of life hacks and how to save different time on things, and, and a lot of times when we think about how we guide our time or what should guide it, we think more at kind of that small level of today and managing the, the hours that we have and how to get things done, and a lot of best-selling books are about that kind of stuff, but if you think higher level, if you think bigger picture which sometimes we do, but again, it takes kind of more of these reflective moments. If you think bigger picture and say, what should my time be used on in life? Like, what should I spend my life doing? What should my days be adding up to in the first place? What, what should I spend the next 10 years doing? What do I want this to be about? What do I, when you start to kind of ask those questions, that's when it gets kind of bigger picture. And there's a lot of different answers that people give to that. 
Sometimes when you start to ask that question of what should, what should I use my life for? What should guide the use of my years and my time? Sometimes we answer that question with, well, it should really be about those that you love, right? Spend it on your loved ones. That's what matters most. No, a lot of times there's kind of this uh, classic idea of no one gets to the end of their, their life and says, man, I really wish I would have worked more. But more people are going to say, I, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I would, wish I would have spent more time with those I love. So there's kind of that idea of, you know, you know what should guide it is spending it with those you love. Sometimes it's about making a difference. What should guide your time is really make a difference in this world and find a way that you can leave your mark or leave a legacy and, and really kind of uh, do something that counts. Sometimes it goes that direction or sometimes it goes the direction more just find your passion. The, what you should do in your life is just do what you love. Figure out whatever that is and spend your life doing what you love and, and just kind of what you are passionate about. Sometimes it's kind of more the bucket list idea of just figure out the things that you most want to do. Sometimes they're just kind of weird things like I want to shake Kevin Bacon's hand or something, just kind of random things or I want to, uh, you know, go on the mad teacup ride at Disneyland 30 times in a row or it's just sometimes it's weird things. Uh, there's a whole website of all these different bucket list things that you can go, yeah, I want to do that one. I want to do that one. Sometimes it's things that are travel and I want to go to Italy or I want to go to uh, Jamaica or just kind of fun things. I want to swim with dolphins with Kevin Bacon or whatever it is, right? Like just it's sometimes it's all sorts of just things like that. So when you think about the bigger idea of how do I, what should guide the use of my time, it's not a question we often think about, but when we kind of get at that big picture, it often falls into maybe one of those categories, like big fun goals that we have or making a difference or spending it with loved ones or just kind of doing what we're passionate about. But Jesus gives us an entirely different framework, which is none of those things. And I'm not saying that those are all bad or you shouldn't do any of those things, but, but Jesus gives us a framework that is totally different from that. That when we come to this question of what should guide how we use our time, which is an important question. It's an important question to think, what am I even doing? Like with all these years I have, what should guide it? Jesus gives us a framework way different from any of the most common themes or answers that we normally hear. So I want to read through this together, and then we will explore really what Jesus is saying. Here's what he says. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. He's going to give these three different images. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So let me just talk about these two images first that he gives. The first is that there's a groom that's at a wedding. And sometimes these weddings, they would take, no one knew how long. It might take a week. It might take a couple weeks. It might take a few days. It was just these big, giant parties. And so the master, the person getting married, is gone at the wedding banquet. And the servants are at home. And he's saying that they are to be ready for when he comes. And they don't know when he's coming back. He might come back, the wedding might only last a day, and there's no cell phones, right? So he's not calling and saying, I'm on my way, get everything ready. They're just supposed to be ready the, all night long. They're supposed to be ready. They're supposed to be having the lamps lit and everything set so that if he comes back in the middle of the night, if he comes back at, at two in the morning, some of you, maybe that's not the middle of the night. You're like, my night's just getting started at two in the morning. But whenever he, at the middle of the night, 7.30, right? For those of you that are older, he comes back at 7.30 p.m. He comes back in the middle of the night and they're ready. They've got the lamps lit so that he can enter. They've got the doors ready. They've got food ready. They've got his bed ready. They've, they're there to greet him. Hey, how was the wedding, sir? Good to see you. 
You need some aspirin? What, you know, do you need, what, what, what can we do for you? And do you need a snack? You know, what, what can we do? They're ready. They're waiting for him to come back. Versus the master shows up. It's pitch black. There's no automatic lights. So it's pitch black. He shows up. He's got to pound on the gate to get someone to let him in. And they come in. He's got to, there's no food for him. His sheets aren't ready on the bed. What, you know, whatever it is. So he says, the first image is this. These people, they've been waiting all night long and they are prepared for the master to come home. And the second image is more of a negative image that he gives about the thief. He says, the, no one, if, if, you, if the homeowner knew what hour the thief was coming, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. But that's not how it works, right? Thieves, thieves don't let you know. It's not like Lyft and it says, you know, your driver will be there in five minutes. The thief will be here in five minutes. And you're like, oh, crap, I got to get everything ready. Uh, or get, you know, I got to lock the door. I got to stand outside. I got to call my strongest friends over or whatever, you know, that you need to do. He says, you, when the thief comes, no, you're not, you're not expecting it. Of course, you would have had things arranged differently. Of course, you would have done things, but you're not ready. So that's more an image of not being ready when the thief comes. And then the final one is similar theme, but he, he says this. Lord, Peter asked, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? So Jesus is giving these illustrations and Peter says, is this for us, your disciples, the apostles, or for everybody? And Jesus doesn't give a direct answer as typical of Jesus. Instead, he tells another story. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible manager? His master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment, will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. So the final image is a master that leaves and puts his servant, the steward, in charge of the household, to take care of the household. And one of the servants, in one scenario, takes care and does everything, just as the master said. The master comes back, and he's been taking care of the household. He's been making sure everyone is fed. He's been doing all the jobs that he was assigned to do. And that's kind of one scenario. The other scenario is that there is a servant that says, ah, I don't know how long uh, my master is going to be. Maybe he's going to take a long time to come. And instead, what he does is say, I'm just going to eat all this food myself, drink all this stuff myself, and make everyone do what I want, beat them, and do all of that. So he kind of gives both of those images, which, of course, that person wouldn't do that if they knew that the master was coming. So all three of these together, here is the idea that Jesus is saying of what should guide the use of our time, being ready for his return. Being ready for his return. That's the guide which is very different, right? When we think about our life and we think about what should guide all of those years and all of those checkboxes, whether it's our passions or making a difference or our loved ones, Jesus gives an entirely different framework to, his, to, the, to the people that he's teaching. He says, here's what I want to guide your time. Live ready for my return. And he knows that's not our tendency. He knows that's not our tendency. That's why he tells the story. Our temptation is to be tired, right? Like if you think about those guests waiting for uh, the, the master to come home, that's, that would be tiring. To stay up all night, that's our tendency. The temptation is to be tired. The temptation is to be doubtful or unbelieving. The, the one servant said that, ah, my master's going to delay. He's not going to come. That's the temptation for all of us. Isn't our temptation in our life to not have the focus, I'm living ready for his return? Our temptation is to not live with the focus that he desires us to live with. 
whether that's because we are misusing our time on other things, whether it's because we're just not thinking about it, whether it's because we're just not really believing or expecting that he is going to return. That's not really how we often live. We know that that's not the tendency we have. I mean, just I was thinking about it this week for myself, but you can just think about it. Is that, like no one's going to, check your answer here, but is that what guides your time? When you think about what's guiding the the years that you have and the weeks that you have is what's guiding your time right now, I'm living ready for his return. Probably that's not the main guide that we have. He wants us to live ready, which is why really all of those three stories are prefaced with him saying this, be ready for service. Now, the literal translation of that is not be ready for service. It's a term that we don't really use and maybe don't even really understand. In the King James, it's more literal because maybe when that was uh, written, they were still doing things at least similar to this. But it says, gird up your loins. And we don't talk a lot about loins and definitely not about girding them. But let me just show you what that means. This is how to gird up your loins. Okay, And I I thought about wearing a robe today just to show you what it meant, but... I decided against it, but I, I really wanted to dress like this today, but I didn't. Okay, so uh, you have like a long tunic. This is how they dressed, right? And then if you're getting ready really for battle, you got to pull, I'm not going to do all of it, but you got to pull it up. You got to hold it up. Then you got to tuck it under, tie it around, and you have to get everything, you know what I mean by everything, but get everything really nice and tight and secure, Right? That's what you have to do in order to fight. That's what girding up your loins means. And that's what it literally says. So Jesus says this. Listen, there's, you got to be ready for the wedding. you got to be uh, ready like a thief that's going to come. you got to be ready like a master. And, and the overarching really kind of just preface to all of it is gird up your loins. That's the image. Because what that means is things are about to get crazy, right? This guy's going for a battle. Things are about to get crazy. Things, things in your life are going to be dangerous. Things in your life are going to be tempting to get off track. Things in your life, you have to be prepared and ready and alert and ready to spring into action and not have anything hinder you, not have anything keep you from, from what you are called to do, not have anything be like, well, I can't do that. I'm not quite ready this might really be kind of unsafe loin-wise. You, you've got to be ready to go. That is the calling that Jesus gives to us of how we are to have our time guided, to live ready in a posture. That's why, you know, the girding up your loins is kind of funny, but that posture of, I mean, it, just think about it, if you walked around with girded loins, that's a posture of, I'm ready to go. That is the calling that he is giving to us to say, I want you to live ready, active. What matters most, what gives focus, what should guide our time, what gives meaning to our life in every single checkbox is living ready for his return. That's the guide that we are called to. So how do we actually do that? How do we use the time that we have ready for his return? How do we use time like that? Because it's one thing to know that that's how we should use it, but how do we use time? What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like to use time ready for his return? What does that look like? And if we explore this passage that we read, there's at least four things that I think that we can gather from here. The first is simply this. He says, you are to be like people waiting for their master. And that word master is repeated throughout the whole, all of the stories. The idea is that we understand and know that he is the master. That's where it has to start. If you want to use time ready for his return, the starting place of that is you have to know who you are and you have to know who he is that he is 
the master. Now, let me explain why this is so important because oftentimes that's not how we're told to live our life. I, I did a lot of kind of just searching around just to kind of see what some of the answers are on this of how, man, I don't know why this thing keeps doing this and right at this time, uh, but I'll just wait a couple seconds. There we go. Okay, so how to spend my life. I, I kind of just Googled a bunch of this stuff. How to spend my life. How do I use my life? What should I spend my life doing? All of those kinds of things. And really, there's all sorts of different answers out there. If you, you know, go down the rabbit, I wasted too many checkboxes of my life we're, you know, searching through this. But really, the common stuff that comes out is, is this, okay? This is one of the big answers. How and where should I spend my life? And this is the kind of top answer on Karah. First of all, nobody has the right to tell you how and where you should live. However, if you still want to know, it's pretty simple. Simpler than it might seem. And I'm not going to show you what he said. But, so you're, you can hang in suspense. But the, the point is this. The, the number one answer that came up on Karah and that came up as I googled how to spend my life is this. Nobody can tell you. Nobody has the right. That's the common answer. Nobody can tell you how. Nobody can tell you where. Nobody has the right to speak that into your life. What is that saying? You are the master. Nobody can tell you. You have to decide for yourself. You have to look inside and figure it out. You have to discover your own purpose. You have to discover your own passion. You have to Figure out who you are and be that. That is really what the answer is, which is very contrary to what Jesus is telling us in this passage. See, that idea that if you look inside and discover, if you, if you kind of say, okay, what am I supposed to do with my life? Nobody can tell me. I just have to figure it out. That idea promises freedom. It promises no one can constrain you and promises that you can kind of live free. But what it actually does, some of you know this, some of you have experienced this, what it actually does is create a lot of angst over time. Maybe not immediately, but even as I search through on Google, there's literally thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people wondering the answer to this kind of question. Because when there is all of that freedom, it actually creates a lot of angst. That if I'm the one that has to figure out what my life is about, if I'm the one that has to figure out what my life is for, if I'm the one that has to determine my own meaning and my own purpose and my own existence, that promises freedom. Nobody can tell you. Figure it out yourself. But it actually leads to a lot of anxiety. It actually leads to a lot of pressure. It actually leads to a lot of weight that we are not meant to bear. We have to bear the burden of self-creation. Who am I? I will decide. What is my life about? I will decide. We are not meant to be the center. We are not meant to be the thing that everything orbits around. We're not meant to be that. Things get out of whack when we put ourselves in a position where we are creating ourselves and discovering ourselves. When we are in the center, the orbit is off and then our life is off and we're bearing a burden that we're never intended to have. But if we understand and know that he is the master, we don't have to be at the center. We're actually free to listen to his voice. We're actually free to let him guide us and instruct us. We're actually free to let him define us. We're actually free to let him tell us, here's who you are. Here's what your life is about. Here's what you're designed to be. It, is actually, it might seem constraining, but it's actually freeing. It actually gives us a rest to know that we are a part of something bigger, that someone bigger is speaking into our life and we don't have to bear the weight of self-creation. What it also does is mean that we don't need. See, if, if I'm the center of my life, if I'm the center and nobody else can tell me anything, then I need recognition also from other people. I need recognition that I'm doing it well and I need recognition that people say, yes, 
good job, you, you have figured it out yourself. I need recognition if I'm at the center. But if it's about him, then even if I'm never recognized, I can say my life is pointing to someone else. I can say that my life is about him and not about me. I don't even need results in my life. I don't even need success in my life because I'm saying it's not about me and my self-determination. I'm, it's about him. I'm serving him. I don't even need fulfillment in my life. See, there's a great burden of living a completely fulfilling life if you are the self-creator. And listen, I hope you have a joyful, happy, fulfilling life. But the reality is a lot of us experience pain and suffering and all sorts of things that are really hard. But if we're told nobody can tell you what to do, just go create a fulfilling life. What if it doesn't end up as fulfilling as you wanted it to be? But see, if, if you don't need recognition and you don't even need results and you don't even need fulfillment in that way because you're saying it's not about me. It's about him. He's the master. That changes things and gives a new kind of rest where my life is really about honoring him, him at the center. So think about this. Is this your why for what you do and how you live? Is this your why for how you're living and what you're doing and your job and your family and even your good Christian service and things? Is it, I want to show who he is. How we use the time ready for his return, the first answer is this. We have to know that he is the master. We're not the master. That removes us from the center and puts him there, which actually gives us a rest and a freedom. Secondly is this. We need to learn the master's will. That servant who knew his master's will, which is saying that that's a part of it. You have to know what the master's will is. You have to not just know that he is the master, but you have to know what his will is, which means it's not just saying, okay, yeah, God's the first, he's the most important thing in my life. Okay, there we go, yep. And then kind of moving on. But to learn the master's will means we actually have to listen. We have to say, okay, God, what, what is your will about all of these different parts of my life? If I said to my kids, if I said, hey, I'm gonna leave for uh, even if I said I was going to leave for a couple hours, but let's say I was going to said I'm going to leave for a week. And I said, I'm going to leave for a week. I want you to be ready for my return. And you better be ready when I come back. You better be ready for my return. This really matters. And then I walked out. Don't you think they would kind of freak out? They would probably got, want to know, uh, what are we supposed to do to get ready? Tell us what it is that you want us to do. Tell us what your will is while you're gone. They, I mean, if I said, I'm going to cut you to pieces when I return. I, okay, don't call CPS. I'm not saying I have said this. But if I said that, if I said, you better be ready for my return, they're going to want to know what it is that my will is, right? So Jesus says, you need to live ready for my return. But one of the pieces of living ready for his return is, we need to know what his will is then, Right? There's no way to live ready for his return if we don't actually know what his will is in our life. There's no way for us to be living ready if we don't really know what he expects and what he wants and what it's supposed to look like for us. So we have to learn the master's will. And that is a question that you have to ask. If, if I'm living ready for his return, Am I seeking to know what God's will is with my time? Am I see do I really do I approach things in my life saying, God, what is your will about this? Or do I just kind of live and and expect that really my intuition is what's right? I mean, listen, a lot of times I think we just live our life expecting that our intuition about things is what's right. We kind of just say, I, I just know, I just know this is what's right. I have a peace about it. Or even, I just kind of know that I know. I'm just kind of following my heart. I'm just kind of doing what I think is right. I'm just kind of living my truth. All of those kinds of things are just, I'm operating on instinct. And yet, what Jesus is saying is, you need to learn the master's will. 
It's not your will and your heart and your instinct and your intuition that matters. What matters if you're supposed to be living ready for his return is what is his will. And so are we coming to God and saying, God, here's my time. What is your will on how I use my time? God, here is my money. What is your will on how I use my money? God, here are my relationships. What is your will on how I do relationship? Here's my family. Here's my marriage. Here's my sexuality. Here's, here's my friendships. Here's my schooling. Here's my work. Are we bringing all of those things and saying, I want to know your will because you said that you are going to return. And so if you're the master, I want to know what your will is. That's really the second thing. And the way that we figure all that out of what his will is, is by reading the Bible. It's by Christian community. It's through our life transformation groups. It's through other Christian believers being able to speak into our lives and give us truth. All of it's through church and hearing his word preached, all of that stuff. Third of how we use our time ready for his return is that we are to serve. And he gives us two pictures that we looked at of kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum. The first person who's put in charge is um, giving the servants their allotted food at the proper time. So you see one of the key components is that he is taking care of the house. He is serving. And then the other person is beating the male female servants and eating and drinking and getting drunk. And it's really these opposite sides of the coin that to live ready for his return inherent in that is that we have a posture of serving people. We have a posture of serving because the opposite side is this. A lot of times when we're not watched, when people aren't watching our life, like when no one is looking, when no one is watching, isn't it easy to just kind of do whatever you want to do? That's the picture of the servant there. He's just beating them, maybe because he's just capricious or maybe because they're not doing exactly what he wants. And then he's looking at all the food and eating and drinking and getting drunk. And if the master was standing there, there's no way he would do that. But isn't it easy when no one's watching to just kind of say, eh, no one's looking. I'm just going to kind of do this and do that and if you've ever been at work and maybe you're scrolling social media and, and then someone pops in and you close the windows or, you're, I mean, it's, it's easy to just, when no one's looking, this is why a lot of times when people want, um, you know, sometimes people will bring in the media to create accountability for something, right? Because if, if, the, if the world's not watching, then a lot of times institutions, corporations, those in power will do whatever they want. But when there's watching eyes, then all of a sudden there's accountability. That's why, for those of you that have kids, if you walk in the room, all of a sudden they might stop what they're doing, right? Like, what was going on in here? Now it's quiet, too quiet, right? Because when there's watching eyes, there's accountability. And what he is saying here is we are called to serve. That's part of how we use our time ready for his return. But if Jesus returned right now, if he came back right now and he asked you, tell me about, tell me about your relationships. Tell me about your marriage. How are you serving there? Tell me about your kids. How are you serving there? Tell me about your community. How are you serving there? Tell me about your church. How are you serving there? If he started asking questions about the serving, would we be caught that we have been either mistreating people or just self-indulgent? That's what the one servant was. He was both mistreating people and just kind of, I'm really just kind of using my time for me. If Jesus showed up today and started asking questions about our serving, how would that feel? Would it feel like, great, I've, got, I, I've been caught doing my job? Or would it be all of a sudden, uh, well, give me another week. Can you come back in one more week? I promise I'll get it together. I promise that I'll, I'll fix this, and I promise I'll change that. What would it be like if he started asking questions about the way that we are serving? To use our time ready for his return is to serve. God has entrusted us to serve. 
those that are the least of these, those that we are close to, those that are outside of the faith, to serve even by sharing the good news of who Jesus is. He has called us to serve. And then finally, and similar, related, is this. It says, Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Doing his job. Which really is just the final thing, that we use our time ready for his return by being faithful. Doing your job. Doing your job. Now listen, I think this is important for many of us that are Christians. Because what this means is it's not just your desires. Like, I want to do this. I want to serve God in this way. I want to have close community. I want to grow with God. I care about the needs in the world. I care about this or, or even kind of your one days. One day I'm going to get involved in this and one day I'm going to be a part of that. It's not our desires. It's not our knowledge. He doesn't say, he, the servant that he comes back, he's going to give him a theology quiz and say, okay, what's all the things that you believed? Did you believe this? Did you believe this? Did you believe this? Did you believe this? He says it is, he's, who is he going to find him doing his job? Like the people in this text that Jesus is correcting and speaking to aren't necessarily big sinners. It's not even necessarily people that are doing something wrong, but it's people not doing something right, not doing their job. That's what James talks about. James in, in the, is a, a book in the Bible. And James, like a lot of times when we think about sin, we think of sin as doing something wrong. And that's true. That's one of the definitions of sin. But sin is also not doing what we know is right. It's not just the sins of commission, what we commit, but it's the sins of omission or what we omit, what we don't do. See, you could be a really good moral person and be found in this story as someone not doing your job. See, God has given all of us a job to do in this world. Ways that we are called to be faithful. Ways that we are called to seek his kingdom. Ways, things that he wants us to do. Inactivity is not the sign of maturity. Just saying, God, I am not doing this list of things. That's not maturity. God says, when I come back, Jesus says, when I come back, I want you to be found doing your job. I want you to be found using your time for the things that I have said are important. I want to come back finding you in the middle of action, doing the things that I have given you to do. So much can sap our time and our focus in our energy, but are you found, if Jesus came back today, would you be found doing your job? Or would you more just say, I'm not doing all these things? It's not enough to say that we know he's returning. He wants us to live ready for his return, girded loins. Final question is this. What motivation is given to use our time like this? Because maybe it's not easy to think about this. So what, what does he put in this passage even to, to motivate us? And the first part of what he uses to motivate us is he tells us that he will evaluate our use of our time. He will evaluate it. And there's kind of the positive side and the negative side of that. When he talks about he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful, that stuff sounds scary, right? And to say that the servant who knew the master's will will be severely beaten and the one that didn't know it uh, will have a light beating and kind of all of this stuff. There's this aspect of judgment that he is saying, it matters. And this is not to say that how much you do as a Christian will weight the scales on if you will be cut to pieces or not. But what it is to say is that our faith and its genuineness will be evaluated. That if you are genuinely someone that is a Christian, or are you somebody that is at church, but not actually someone who has submitted to the master, that loves the master, 
that is walking with Jesus, that has given their life to Jesus, that has received forgiveness from Jesus. We are not saved by our works. That's not what this is teaching. But it is saying that God will evaluate the genuineness, that there will come a time when the genuineness is evaluated. Many people listening to this teaching by Jesus would listen to all sorts of things that Jesus spoke, listen to all sorts of teachings that Jesus gave, saw all sorts of miracles that Jesus did, and then cried, crucify him. So he will evaluate and will judge and will bless. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. He gives both sides of the coin, saying that God evaluates. God evaluates our lives. There's the judgment side of that, and there's the blessing side of that. And, and listen, to encourage some of you that need to hear the blessing side of that, is that we might live our whole life, and nobody sees. We're doing our job. We're being faithful. We are serving. We are living with him as the center of our life, as our master. We are seeking our will, and it, seeking his will, and none of it looks remarkable. None of it looks super sexy. None of it looks, wow, that's really cool life. No one's writing stories about you. you have, you'll have a, a grave in a cemetery that just kind of gets passed on by. And Jesus says, but I see, I evaluate. And blessed are those that he finds alert when he comes. See, God evaluates our lives. That's the first motivation that he gives to us. And the point of all that is to say this, your life is not unimportant, even if it feels that way. As far as I know, none of you are famous. None of you are celebrities. None of you are all that, you know, maybe, maybe we have someone famous watching online. So, you know, I guess for our famous people online, but the rest of us, we're not, we're not all that important or all that, you know, I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal. But Jesus is still saying, your life is not unimportant. The idea that God evaluates our lives might be kind of scary, but what that is saying is, your life matters to me. Every one of those check boxes matters to me. Every hour that you have and all the different things that he has assigned to us, he is saying, it matters to me. I'm looking at your life and it matters to me. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I'm gonna come back someday, so make sure you believe. He says, your life and your time actually matters to me. It has eternal value and eternal significance. And it's true for every single one of us. Your life counts, your days count count, Jesus is saying. It matters to him. And the final piece of motivation is to see who he is. So we see that he evaluates, but then we also see that who he is. And there's not a lot about that in there, but there is this little snippet that is actually really important. He says, truly I tell you about the master, that when the master comes back, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve them. And it's a very unique twist on the story that there's these servants waiting for the master to come back. And then when the master comes back, what you would expect is that those servants serve the master. But instead, the master comes back and says, now I'm gonna serve you. The master comes back and he comes and serves them. He comes and makes them a meal. He comes and serves them. And it's saying something very unique. Like this would be a very, a, a twist on the story. It's, it tells us something about Jesus, that he is the servant master. And we know this obviously through the rest of Jesus' life, that he was the king, but he was the king that came to serve. That he was the master and the Lord, but the one that came and washed the disciples' feet. That he is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and yet took on human flesh and was born as a child and, and lived to identify with us and to empathize with us, that he is, has all glory and all power and yet suffered. It is giving us this window to say, yes, he's your master, but, but remember, there's some motivation to serve him. See, because if, if you just believe the master's coming back, the master's coming back, you might be fear driven, 
Or you might just not even care. Well, I don't really like that master anyway. I'm just going to leave. It's not worth staying up for. It's not worth kind of taking care of all the business here for. I don't really care. But if you know, but you don't know my master. I've got a good master. I've got a master that's going to come back and serve me, that loves me, that cares for me. I've got a master that values me. And, And these are just parables, so they're just giving us a snippet. But the life of Jesus gives us so much more motivation. See, you know what kind of master you have. The motivation that we should live to say, I want to live ready for his return, is how good of a master we have. One that would serve us and die for us and give his life for us. Remembering that draws us to him. We all have a limited amount of time. How can we make the most of it? How can we live with focus? And Jesus says, in order to do that, we must live ready for his return. And we're going to take communion in a moment. And hopefully you got a little cup on the way in. If not, you can grab them in the back. But when we take communion, we're remembering. We're remembering who the master is. We're remembering that we have a master that had his body broken and his blood shed to forgive us of our sins and to bring us into his family. We don't just have one that tells us what to do, but who has done everything for us. And listen, even all the ways that we have failed, all the ways, and, and you know, the older you get, the more that you can look back and go, man, maybe I haven't used my life. The cross covers all of that. The forgiveness of Jesus covers everything that we have done, everything that we have not done, and allows us to stand pure before him. So let's take some time and pray. And as you pray, I would encourage you, if you are not a Christian, part of what it means to be ready for his return is to come to him initially in faith and to say, I need you. I want you to save me. I want you to be my master and to forgive me of using my life with me at the center. I want you. And for those of us that are Christians, it's to confess our sin, and it's to thank him, and it's to remember that he will return. He will return, and he's a good master. Ask him to shape our lives ready for his return. Father, I I thank you that you have given us your son and you've called us into your family and that you've told us that you will return. You've told us that uh, the day is coming and whether we live to see that day or not, you will return. Help us, God, to live our life today ready for your return. Help us, Jesus, to live with you as the master of our lives, with you at the center of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for all the ways and all the time that we have wasted. Help us, Lord, to live a life where we would be happy and proud that if you returned this moment, we would receive you not with any shame or guilt, but just with thankfulness and joy. And let us, as we take communion and sing these songs, have the truth that you have for us go deeper into our hearts. Amen.